I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And we are the prosecutors. Today on The Prosecutors, what happens when the best of friends become the worst of enemies? It's neighbor versus neighbor in the case of Billy Woodward. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest episode of The Prosecutors. I am Brett, and I am joined, as always, with the very best lawyer I know, Alice. That's a little bit of a hyperbole there. (laughs) Uh, Hey, everyone. (laughs) Thanks for joining us again. Most of the lawyers I know are very bad, so... (laughs) I thought you were going to say you didn't know any other lawyers. No. Unfortunately, I can't say that. (laughs) But anyways, no, it's very true, Alice. Um, you know, you know, you know how I hold you in high esteem, and I feel like the listeners now know just how savvy you are. So, you know, if you ever injured in an accident, you know who to call. <laughs> Thanks. You just you you serve as my billboard. <laughs> so, Alice, you know, I feel like our show is sort of a historical repository for all the crazy things that happen uh this year 2020 um you know for the longest time we've been doing this whole uh coronavirus thing and we've i've said this before but we've kind of recorded ahead because you know if we get stuck in trial or whatever we don't want you guys to miss an episode so we're a little bit ahead so i feel like you're opening a a uh what do they call those things a time capsule, exactly, when you listen to these. So right now, you know, we've had we've had a lot of unrest. We've had a lot of rioting. I know people feel very strongly about that. This is a politics-free zone. So, you know, you're not going to have to worry about us uh, preaching to you. I feel like you should have some respite uh, from the politics of the day. Um, you know, obviously, the Constitution, the First Amendment, a lot of people don't know this. That, you know, it's more than just freedom of the press and freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Everybody also has the right to peaceably assemble. So I don't think everybody agrees on that. But right now, you got a lot of people who feel very passionately. And you got this question about, you know, how bad do things have to get before violence becomes an option that you consider? And we're not going to dive into that. But the case we're going to look at today It's kind of like that on a small scale. It's a situation where you had people who were living together in a neighborhood who suddenly, frankly, hated each other uh, and how the situation deteriorated from then and ended up in the worst violence you can imagine. So this is the case of Billy Woodward. Uh, This is actually a case that was recommended to us. By one of our good friends on Reddit. They get their name, so they get credit. Um, do, 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 do. 
Come on, Reddit. <laughs> Real poster, one, two, three. I had it up just a few seconds ago. I was prepared. I think it's like, read, think, fight, or something like that. I can't pull it up right now, but you'll see him if you go to Reddit, check out a thread we've been commenting in. Uh, and he recommended us to a podcast called Court Junkie. Um, I advise you to check that out. They've got a great episode on this case. Uh, and it also includes some audio from the trial that resulted here. So we are talking about a case that did go to trial. And so we're going to tell you about the background. We're going to tell you about the things that happened. And then we're going to dive into some of the interesting legal questions here. Uh, you guys have been asking for that. You're going to get it. And it's things, everything from the insanity defense to stand your ground laws to what beyond a reasonable doubt means. Um, a lot of things that go into a trial and why this trial ended up the way it did and whether or not we think that the jury got it right in the end. So let's just go ahead and dive in. Let's give you a little background. We have several families who live in this little community, the Woodwards, the Blakes, and the Hembrys. And they all live on Smith Drive in Titusville, Florida, in the community of Whispering Oaks. And doesn't that just sound so nice, so peaceful, so tranquil? So quaint. And that's where you want to live, right? Whispering Oaks. I can just imagine the commercials now. And, I mean, this is a community that's close to the water. You can see Cape Canaveral from there. You know, if you're living in Whispering Oaks right now, you probably watched the launch uh, earlier this week of the manned spacecraft, uh, SpaceX, you know, the first time in 10 years that America sent people to space. I mean, that's the kind of place this is. It's a nice middle-class area, a lot of people working in the space industry, got good jobs, got good lives, right? And everybody's friends. Um, everything's great. In fact, Billy Woodward and Gary Hembry are the best of friends for years. Their kids play together, you know, in this idyllic suburban neighborhood. Billy has some chickens and he would bring eggs over to Gary. And raising these chickens is part of his therapy because uh, Billy is... He's a former member of the Army. He served in the Gulf War, and he has you know, some PTSD uh, from his time overseas. So this is all part of his sort of therapy. He's got these great friends. But, ah, suburbia. You never know what rot lurks beneath the placid exterior of suburban life. And when Henry's girlfriend, Kim Silsbury, and her children moved in, and later... His old friend, Roger Picciore, came to stay. Suddenly, that rot wasn't below the surface. It was there for the world to see. So, Brett, when I hear all these people kind of jam-packed into, you know, Gary's house, I'm thinking of something about to burst at the seams, like, quite figuratively and literally. All these people are piling into this house, and the more people into a house, the more angst and pressure is building like in a pressure cooker. And that's exactly what's happening here. When did, you know, when did things turn sour? They generally agree it started over a package, a birthday present for the Woodward's daughter that was stolen from their front porch sometime in the summer of 2012. The Woodward's had a friend who had just dropped off a 
a, a nice package, a uh, birthday package, uh, on the Woodward's porch. And they weren't home, so the friend left and later on just called and said, hey, did you enjoy that package? Um, but the Woodward's didn't see any package on their porch. And so instead of thinking maybe someone else took it, they immediately thought because of apparent thefts that were orchestrated by the dastardly seven-year-old daughter of Gary Hembry's girlfriend, they decided that it must have been that that daughter who had stolen the Woodward's present. Sometime before, Billy had discovered that Gary and his crew were smoking pot on a regular basis. Billy decided that he didn't want his daughter spending time with the Hembrys anymore. Remember, they used to be best of friends. And what's crazy about this is just how quickly all of this falls apart. I mean, like I said, they've been friends for years. And then all of a sudden, you know, you have this sort of changing dynamic, I guess. You got new people moving into the house. And like you said, you know, it was bursting at the seams. And I think people were spending a lot of times outside in the front yard. And I think that's how this started. He started seeing them do these things that maybe they had done in private. And and the smoking, the marijuana was one of them. And he was this very straight-laced guy, you know? I mean, exactly what you'd expect from a former military person. And so while a lot of people might say, no biggie, little pot, who cares? For him, it was a big deal. You know, his daughter... And the girlfriend's daughter had become friends, but they had noticed little things at the house, like the candy dish that the daughter kept in her room was suddenly empty. I mean, really stupid stuff, right? But just little things that made them think that this seven-year-old girl was taking stuff. And so they assumed, hey, maybe she took this as well. And they went so far as to call the police. Right, on a seven-year-old girl. I mean, it was obviously, this was just the the straw that, you know, broke the camel's back. The resentment boiled over into just open warfare. Billy called the police on Gary for the package. And then, you know, as if that wasn't enough, just things started snowballing. Later on, uh, Billy calls the police because Gary parked his truck on uh, Billy's grass. I mean, again, seemingly insignificant um, intrusions here. And then Gary reports Billy for raising chickens in his backyard. And this is just a really personal blow to Billy because, as we mentioned earlier, these chickens aren't just for fun or for sport. They're really his therapy for his PTSD. And Gary knew that. And even knowing that bit about Billy, he calls the police on him uh, for these chickens. And so Billy, you know, we've talked about his PTSD, but he also had a severe head injury during his time in the military. And that left him with a lot of other issues that um, he was working through. And I think he was successfully working through them when everything came to a boiling point. Yeah, it's really amazing just how awful uh, people can be to each other, even people they used to be friends with, you know, how these little things can add up. Um, and you see this, and man, it only gets worse from here. I mean, you got, this is, I mean, this is crazy. I, it's hard for me to even imagine some of the stuff that went on. Basically, you got these neighbors, these groups of neighbors. You got Gary and his family, and then you got Billy and his family, 
and neighbors are picking sides and some of them are neutral and some of them are on other people's sides and they're like yelling at each other and cursing at each other and threatening each other like in in the streets right i mean in the streets in the middle of the streets <laughs> this is very vocal and very loud it's it's almost like out of a play they're coming over in the middle of the night and they'll do things like go to the middle of the street, but no further. So it's like, hey, the street's mine too. And they'll yell at the house in the middle of the night, just being, you know, vulgar and all these threats. Uh, at one point, a neighbor supposedly called Billy a toy soldier in one of these, you know, Billy's on his side of the street and they're on their side of the street. And Billy, they said, pulled out a gun and, and says, not a toy soldier. And I can use this. Um, but the police came. Billy denied it. And then there was a third party group of neighbors who said they didn't see this, that Billy never pulled out a gun, and that this was all a lie. I can't imagine what the police were thinking at this point. Uh, police hate, hate, hate domestic violence calls. I mean, they're, they are, and I would consider this all domestic violence, even though it's not within one household. And these are the most dangerous the most volatile calls you can get. And so you've got these people who are, you know, fighting each other essentially in the middle of this neighborhood. And by this point, when the police have been called, you have this other guy, um, Roger Picior, who has, he's down in his luck and he's old friends with Gary and he's moved in with him for a little while. And it's like, Immediately, he joins in antagonizing Billy and his family. Billy's father was a retired police officer, and he would come by the family's home to check on them and make sure things weren't escalating. At one point, Roger may or may not have threatened him, saying that he would take off his head with a baseball bat. He got so bad, so bad, that both sides are now filing for restraining orders against each other. Billy is installing video cameras for security. Gary's installing floodlights that he's pointing at Billy's house, supposedly to blind the cameras, but also had the added benefit of annoying uh, Billy. It sounds like a lot of just kind of passive-aggressive and aggressive-aggressive Um you know, moves. Yeah, it's like something out of a dark comedy, you know, where these neighbors hate each other and they're just, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and unfortunately, it doesn't stay much of a, a comedy. Uh, Gary, you know, Gary, I don't know if he had always done this or or what. I mean, there are people, I've, you know, looking into this case a little bit, there's people who really blame uh Gary's girlfriend for all this, you know, blame the woman, of course, um, that she really changed the situation when she came in. Uh, you can watch a documentary on this. It's one of those, you know, recreation documentaries where they talk to people and then they have actors uh, do the things that happened. It's called um, like Fear Thy Neighbor or something. I think it's on Investigation Discovery and all these people get interviewed. And there, And there's one point where the girlfriend's like, you know, ah, oh, yeah, you know, we were just smoking a little pot. I don't know why it was such a big deal. I don't know why he was so worried about his daughter seeing it. He was so stuck up and all this other stuff. And you just wonder if that that new element, whether it was her fault or not, just 
made things really boil over. But in any event, Gary starts having these massive parties at his house that apparently he had not had before. And he's inviting as many people as possible. And they're all targeting Billy. So they all get together, they get drunk, and then they gather in the middle of the street and they're yelling at Billy and they're yelling at his friends. They're asking, you know, come out, come into the street, you know, come over to our side, let's fight it out and all this other stuff. And then they do. They're getting in fights. Doesn't it sound like a middle school fight? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I, I imagine like kids who can't do anything better. They can't drive. They can't really buy beer. And like they get together and make crank calls. Right. Almost. No, you're right. It is. It's so juvenile. Yeah. And it's like the meet me out by the flagpole or whatever. Um, and they're doing that. And they're getting in these fights in the middle of the street. And the police are getting called. Um, and then he gets, I mean, he gets really bad. You got Gary and... Since Billy has these surveillance cameras, all of this is caught on tape. So, you know, if you watch that episode of that show, they actually are playing from the video camera when this stuff's happening. But at one point, you got people yelling at um, Billy's house that they're going to rape his daughter. Um, They're, you know, they're shouting all these like racial episodes epithets back at each other and they're all white so that doesn't really make sense but they're doing it anyway um and you got billy saying you know he's gonna kill all of them in their sleep if they threaten his daughter again and in less than a month the police are called more than 80 times to this neighborhood to deal with these ongoing issues that's like two and a half times a day every day for a month it's crazy. I mean, can we just say one thing though? The screaming that they're going to rape his young daughter—that's pretty yeah. bad. <laughs> I mean, like that's that's now we've just stepped out of the juvenile, you know, crank calls into whoa. We really just escalated right. that exactly. And what do you do? What do you do when it's gotten that bad and people are saying those kind of things and making you feel unsafe in your own home? Like, where do you go for help? You do what any, uh, what America has learned to do, and you go to court. So on August 29th, 2012, I mean, just imagine how quickly this has escalated. Both sides go to court, and they're asking for protective orders against each other. And we've just told you kind of the history, and understandably, the judge doesn't really take them seriously at all. So instead of doing something about the situation, instead of granting these protective orders, the judge sends everyone home and tells them to basically chill out, behave yourselves. And again, no orders are granted. Let's stop there for a second. Yeah. Do you blame the judge here? Should the judge have done something? You know, the thing is... On the one hand, I totally get it, right? You got these grown people coming to your courtroom and telling you about all this stupid stuff that they're arguing about. Um, and you kind of just want to say, I mean, you can imagine like a Judge Judy episode, right? Where she just like lets them have it and sends them on their way. And I think the judge thought sort of, you know, a stern talking to surely would get through to these people. The one thing that makes me, that does make me kind of blame the judge is you do have these 80 visits by the police, right? So there are recorded instances of violence. You've got recorded instances of threats of people claiming others have guns and that they're threatening to rape each other or whatever, or kill each other in their sleep. 
that makes me think maybe the judge should have done something. And I'll, I'll jump in here and defend the judge for a moment in the sense that I think if there were 80 calls and, you know, recorded uh, situations of, of violence and only one party came in for a protective order, the judge should have granted that protective order. But the fact that they kind of came in together and wanted dueling protective orders, I could imagine the judge thinking like there, there's no need for protective orders on both sides that kind of there's there's just no point for that only what the side that thinks they're being threatened um and and this is often in you know uh, again domestic violence sorts of situations you have protective orders i can see where they're like you guys just want to one-up each other all i'm seeing is you keep calling the cops on each other because you've been escalating the situation and now you're the next step is the court and my court will not be your playground. Right. And there's something called and you make a really good point about how this is both people asking for this. There's something called an obey the law injunction and you can't get those. And the the idea is a court is not going to issue an injunction that just says you need to obey the law. You need to obey the law. Anyway, so these two groups of people don't need protective orders against each other to keep them from doing stupid things to each other. They just need to stop. They just both need to stop. And <laughs> I can understand why the judge would approach it that way. Um, particularly, at, like you said, it's kind of weird. If you have one crazy person, then you want to enjoin that one person to protect everybody. But if everybody's acting crazy, then you do. You just want everybody to calm down, stop attacking each other, and the problem should just go away, theoretically. Right. Now, of course, they don't behave themselves. In fact, Literally in the parking lot of the courthouse as they're walking out, Billy and Gary get into a fight. Gary calls Billy a brain-dead mother effer and a caveman. Billy tells Gary that he's going to die and the rumble is on. Again, this sounds like now West Side Story or something. <laughs> and Gary quite literally sticks his thumbs into Billy's eyes, like to gouge his eyes out. And Gary's girlfriend, I just imagine this happening in, in, you know, fast motion. You can't tell what's happening. And then Gary's girlfriend sticks a cigarette that she's smoking into Billy's ear. Everyone is fighting until some random passerby is seeing this chaos pepper sprays everybody <laughs> to just try to get them to stop like like dogs are fighting in the street you you know that's what happens when when dogs get into a, like a, a rumble you can't they, they can't be reasoned because they're in the heat of the fight and you kind of have to just tear them apart and i that's what this random person does they pepper spray everybody and the police are called and billy is briefly arrested and it seems like the fact that billy was arrested and only billy was arrested really sort of tipped the scales in a bad way because I think what it did was it emboldened Gary and his crew even more. Do you know why Billy was the only one arrested? So the idea essentially is to my understanding is that Billy, the Billy kind of started it, that he was the one like Gary says the mean things to him, essentially. Billy says he's going to kill him and then jumps on him and starts trying to gouge his eyes out or whatever. <laughs> so the police chose just to arrest him. I think the police sh should have 
I think the police should have just arrested both of them. And I think probably, I mean, this was in 2012, so it's not that long ago. But my understanding is the policy in most police departments now probably would result in both of them being arrested in a situation like this. Well, Billy is not not pleased, to say the least. And remember, he has these surveillance cameras. So we actually have, you know, the, the surveillance videos of them constantly constantly yelling at each other. It doesn't stop once they have left the courthouse. Billy's surveillance cameras catches constant yelling from the other side, saying things like, the police won't protect you. Do you feel safer now? And, you know, Gary's side is saying to Billy, boom, boom, I'm not going to miss. I mean, like you said, I think because Billy was arrested, Gary's crew is just feeling emboldened, like, you can't touch me. That brings us to the weekend of Labor Day. And Gary throws his biggest party yet. So imagine this, his bursting at the seams house, and now he's invited everyone he can think of. And they are drinking, drinking, drinking. After they've had a lot of alcohol, Gary and his crew gather in the middle of the road, and they are just throwing insults over to Billy's side. They call Billy's wife a slut, saying that they're going to burn down Gary's house or sorry, saying that they're going to burn down Billy's house. Then the cameras catch something that sound like gunshots. Gary begins to light fires. And this convinces Billy that Gary and his crew really are going to burn down his house. At this point, things take a dark, dark turn. Billy gets his gun. He puts on his camo. He drops onto his stomach and belly crawls across the street. And, you know, the craziest thing about this is uh, Billy and his wife were literally scheduled to close on a different house the next day. They were moving out of the neighborhood, and you've got this party where Billy apparently becomes convinced, based on things he's hearing and things he's seeing, that these people are not going to let him leave. Um, They're going to kill him. They're going to burn down his house. They're going to kill his family. So he belly crawls across the street. He's listening to what these people are saying. And at some point, he hears someone in this group say something along the lines of, let's finish this. Let's go get him. At that point, Billy, he snaps. He goes into military mode. He pops up. He sees Roger Picior first. He shoots him, so he's down. He then fires 11 shots into Bruce Blake, who is another neighbor who's been there and has been very hostile to Billy. Um, at this point, he reloads, and Gary comes out of his house. Billy, he lights him up. And then, while Gary's on the ground, Billy walks around a car to where he's laying. His girlfriend is apparently... She's she's on the ground. She's hit the ground to avoid any shooting. And she watches as Billy shoots him twice in the head. He then walks over to where Roger is laying on the ground. And his 17-year-old son has actually come over to him where he's been shot. Billy takes his gun. And he shoots him twice in the head. Roger twice in his head. At this point, his son begs for his life. And Billy lets him go. Now he's out of bullets. So he doesn't have an opportunity to finish off Bruce. At this point, he walks to the middle of the road, drops to his knees, puts his hands behind his head, and waits for the police to arrive. 
Neighbors are starting to come out, and he yells over to them, don't worry, it's finished, quote, the war is over. That's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, it's one of those situations, I feel like where I'm from, they would have just fought in the middle of the road and, like, beat the crap out of each other, and then, you know, had had a beer afterwards. Yeah. Right. And... But, but you know, it, this one, it just gets worse and worse and worse until finally you have this event. And look, Billy doesn't deny any of it. Not that he could. It's all called on zone surveillance cameras. But he claims he was acting in self-defense. During his interrogation, and we're going to put some videos. You know, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to be putting videos and links to podcasts and links to the articles we've read about this case. And I'll all be online on our website. So check that out. You can see some of this. Um, during his interrogation, he says, quote, I kept low crawling. I was on a military mission. I was going to end this war. Um, he gets asked about Gary, and he says, I had a clean shot at his chest. I put one dead center of his chest. He slumped to the ground. And then he says, I shot Gary Hembry twice in the head. If I remember correctly, you'll have to count the bullet holes when you guys go do the autopsy. Now, remember, this was his friend for years, literally up until a couple months. I don't even know if it's a couple months earlier. They had been very close friends. And now he's talking about, I don't even know how many times I shot him. You'll have to count the bullet holes. But also, I should say, it's very specific. Oftentimes, when we hear um, confessions, if someone's shot someone, they say something along the lines of, I don't remember, I blacked out. He he knows very clearly what he's doing. Yeah, and he he describes it as a military mission, and it's like he's back in Iraq, you know? I mean, he... He has a mission to accomplish, and there's not going to be any blacking out. You know, this is not the weird thing about it and the way he talks about it. You know, we've talked about sort of this escalating rage boiling over, but that's not what you hear from him. You hear this cold, calculated uh, guy describing how step by step he executed what he's calling a mission. And in the course of doing that, he executed these people uh, that he knew. And he said, he said, look, quote, in order to make sure there's no survivors on the battlefield, I point blank shot Rick Picciore in the head once or twice. And then he goes on to say when it came to Bruce Blake, I did not go back and finish the job for Bruce Blake because I was out of bullets. I ran dry on three people. Billy was charged with two counts of first degree murder and one count of attempted first degree murder. And if convicted, Billy was eligible for the death penalty. Now, at trial, and Billy goes to trial, so many, many cases actually plea out before they ever get to the trial phase, not this one. Billy goes all the way to trial, and like we said, he can't deny, and he doesn't deny what he did. Instead, Billy argued the stand-your-ground defense first, but the judge denied that defense. This defendant did not stand his ground, the judge said. What he did was decide to preemptively strike at his victims at a moment when it was entirely unnecessary to do so. There was no imminent threat threat of harm to the defendant or his family. No reasonably cautious and prudent person would have believed the danger could be avoided only through the use of deadly force. 
So we're going to talk about Stand Your Ground in detail here in a second. Um, essentially what happens in these kind of cases, and it depends on a state-by-state basis, of course, but in Florida, the first thing you have is this opportunity to argue before the judge that the stand-your-ground defense should apply. And the reason you get that opportunity is you have immunity from prosecution uh, if you are legitimately defending yourself or your family or another person. So you don't have to go through trial. Exactly. The judge could have on his own said, standard ground applies, he's immune from prosecution, and that's the end of it. And now because the judge denied it, it means that he had to proceed to trial if he didn't plead, and he did not. So at trial, Billy argued self-defense as well. And at the conclusion of the trial, Billy was convicted, but of the lesser included offense of second degree murder. And in Florida, second-degree murder is defined as murder with a depraved mind. And murder with a depraved mind is committed when a person is killed without any premeditated design by an act imminently dangerous to another and evincing a depraved mind showing no regard for human life. The primary distinction between premeditated first-degree murder and second-degree murder with a depraved mind is that first-degree murder requires a specific and premeditated intent to kill. After he's convicted, Billy is sentenced to life in prison. So let's talk about this first-degree murder versus second-degree murder thing quickly. Or not quickly necessarily, but obviously... We're having an issue right now in this country with degrees of murder and how you determine what you're going to charge someone with. And, you know, sometimes people just think if it's a really bad murder, then it must be first degree murder. Um, And so if you're really bad, man, we need to do first degree murder or there's no justice. Um, The problem is it's all about state of mind, which is an incredibly difficult thing to prove in a lot of cases. Now, it's not always difficult. If you hire a hitman, you intended to kill somebody and you had premeditation on that. Now, premeditation can be instantaneous. If you have the gun and right before you shoot, you decide, I'm going to kill this person, that's premeditated murder. But if instead you're just doing something that you didn't intend to kill anyone, but what you're doing is is very dangerous and shows that you just don't care. You don't care whether this person lives or dies. You know, that shows that depraved um, mind and no regard for human life. So, you know, think of something like... uh you know, somebody's joyriding and they decide to shoot up a house, right? Because they're just jerks or whatever. (laughs) So they drive by and they shoot up a house. Now, they don't know if anybody's in the house and they don't care if anybody's in the house. If someone is struck by a bullet in a case like that, that's a case where you're going to see probably second degree murder, despite the fact that that sounds really awful and really terrible because they did not have that specific intent to kill someone. If instead they're doing a drive-by shooting because they know somebody lives in that house and they want that person to die and they shoot up the house and that person dies, then that's going to be first-degree murder. And the whole difference is, what were they thinking? Were they thinking, I want to kill someone right now? Or were they just doing something that was completely 
as depraved as they say in the statute where they just don't they just don't care they don't care if they die or not doesn't matter to them um then you have second degree murder where this is confusing is a case like this because in this case Billy is charged with first-degree murder, and you can have situations where you overcharge something, where you charge something, and if you don't meet that level of proof, then you're going to lose. And you're going to lose even if somebody died, and even if a manslaughter was committed. And it all depends on what the state laws are and whether or not there are lesser included offenses. So this second degree murder charge was a lesser included offense. So the jury was able to decide we'll go with that one instead of first degree murder. Now, is that second degree murder um, lesser included charge always included? Or do you have to do something when you charge first degree murder to include the lesser included offense? So I don't know in Florida, in a lot of cases, you do have to do that. In a lot of cases, the prosecution has to specifically decide to give the jury the option to convict on a lesser included offense. That is a tactical decision. It's a strategic decision. Some prosecutors want to force the issue. They don't want to allow the jury an option to go the easy way out, as it were. They want them to make the tough call. And you can see that in this case. I think there's a really good argument that there's no way he committed this kind of crime because he very clearly intended to kill these people. And it's either he was defending himself when he killed these people or he was crazy when he killed these people or he committed first degree murder. I don't really know how you get to the when you shoot someone twice in the head and you say when you're on the battlefield, you leave no enemy behind. I don't know how you get to second-degree murder from that, other than essentially jury nullification. You've probably heard of jury nullification. Um, and essentially, it's just when a jury does what a jury wants to do, despite the facts, despite the law. Um, actually, you know, for legal nerds out there, way back, like 300 years ago, <laughs> maybe not even that far, but juries actually decided facts and law. So, Juries were sort of considered a yet another sort of bulwark against over government. So if a jury thought a law was unjust, even if they thought the person was guilty of violating that law, they were perfectly within their rights to acquit them anyway. We don't do that anymore. Now, juries are supposed to just decide facts, but you still have this thing called jury nullification that Defense attorneys, when they're sort of up against the wall, that's what they'll go for to try and get the jury. At the end of the day, it's the jury's decision. The jury says not guilty. You're not guilty. So and they can do that for whatever reason they want, as long as it's not obviously improper. Well, they can find them not guilty for any reason they want. If you find somebody guilty for reasons based on like race or something like that, you can't do that. But beyond that, juries basically have total control to do what they want and I think in this case, the prosecution probably saw there was a real danger here of acquittal if they went straight for first degree murder. So they included this lesser included offense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, you were saying you don't see how they get to second degree murder, but from a law and order perspective, wanting to get a dangerous man off the street, they would rather 
essentially have this jury nullification and go to second degree murder than let this guy walk free with the risk of this guy walking free, right? Right. And we're going to talk about, you know, stand your ground law and and self-defense and all that stuff. This jury didn't buy that. This jury didn't think any of that was going on. What they did think were these people were a bunch of assholes. That's what they thought. They thought these people drove this guy crazy and he snapped. And yeah, he shouldn't have done that. And he shouldn't, have, you know, killed all these people and shot all these people. But I think there was something in the back of their minds. And you see this in people who talk about this case where they're kind of like, yeah, those guys got what they deserved. You know, like they pushed him too far. And this is what happens. It's a really good defense, too, because most everybody has neighbors. And most everyone has probably lived in a situation where someone annoyed them or it was not the best neighbor situation. Have you ever lived near somebody who was just wasn't the best, whether it was they never took out their trash or they played their music too loudly? I think it's so – it resonates with so many people that they can imagine – what if it got worse? My situation never got that bad. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know that I've ever had a perfect neighbor. You know what I mean? There's always something they do that annoys you. And man, I cannot imagine what this must have been like. Like, I just can't. It just blows my mind that something like this happens. Well, you're supposed to be able to go home and relax. Your home is your, you know, at the end of the day, kind of your sanctuary. And to go home to this hostile battlefield, essentially, at all hours of the day with some of the most vile things that can be yelled at a person in your own home, I think is, it it would drive me mad. No, it would me too. It would me too. And the other thing you have here, and you do have it, you have a real question. Did Billy truly fear for his safety and his family's safety? So let's talk about stand your ground a little bit. Um, you know, it's gotten some bad press in the last decade or so uh, because of some very controversial cases that have involved the defense. The essential idea behind it is simply this. If you're an innocent person and another person threatens you, threatens to kill you, threatens to kill your family, threatens to rape your wife, and it's a serious, real threat, do you have to run away or not? Do you, Or can you fight? Can you immediately fight Back. That's really all this is about. Under sort of common law, which is what we call traditional law that's not based in statute, but just sort of based in how we've always done it, you had a duty to retreat. So if someone threatens to kill you, if someone threatens to kill your family, you have to at least try and run. You have to at least try and find help or find cover before you can fight back. And there's a real feeling that that puts you at a severe disadvantage. Someone's trying to kill you and you got to, you know, you got to do something to protect them. Um, And a lot of people thought that was really unjust and that if you have a legitimate fear, you should be able to stand your ground. Now this goes along with something called the castle doctrine and the castle doctrine is incredibly common. And it just says, if you're in your home, if you're in your castle, you don't have to retreat. So you have common law self-defense, which says if you're out in the world, someone threatens to kill you, you have to retreat. But if you're in your home and like someone breaks in and they're like, I'm going to kill you, you can just shoot them. You don't have to run away, right? There's only one state that doesn't have the Castle Doctrine or Stand Your Ground, and that's Vermont. So if you're in Vermont, 
got to run away no matter where you are. Sorry. Um, but essentially, stand your ground was just let's expand this right beyond the home. So I'm going to read you Florida's stand your ground statute. So it's Florida statute 776.012. If you want to check it out, it says a person is justified in using or threatening to use force except deadly force, against another when and to the extent that person reasonably believes that such conduct is necessary to defend himself or herself or another against the other's imminent use of unlawful force. So the idea here is if someone's like, man, I'm going to kick your ass, right? You can't pull out a gun and shoot them. <laughs> like you can match force with force, right? Like you, you could probably say, if you do that, I'm going to pull out a gun and shoot you, and that would be fine. But what you can't do is you can't act beyond that. But if someone says, man, yeah, I'm about to beat you up or whatever, you can go ahead and just lay them out, like hit them in the face, knock them out, right? You can totally do that. You can take the first move if you have this reasonable belief uh, that they're about to use that same kind of force on you. And the law specifically says a person who uses or threatens to use force in accordance with this subsection does not have a duty to retreat before using or threatening to use such force. So that's the first part. The second part, deadly force. Basically the same thing. You can use or threaten deadly force if you reasonably believe that using or threatening to use such force is necessary to prevent imminent death or great bodily harm to yourself to your family, to your friends, like anyone who is under this threat of imminent harm. So essentially it's saying you have to reasonably believe you have no other choice. Exactly. Exactly. And you have to be in a situation, and, and the word reasonably here is really important. And if you know anything about the law, reasonableness is just shot through it. The question is always, what would a reasonable person do? What would a reasonable person expect in this situation? Right? So it's not subjective. So if I'm an unreasonable person and I unreasonably believe that my life is threatened, but I believe it to my core, that's not good enough. It has to be something that your average person out there in the world, if they were in that situation, they would react in the same way. Now, one, one sort of interesting limitation on this that doesn't get talked about a lot, if, if you are the one threatening deadly force, you can't be engaged in criminal activity already, and you have to be in a place where you have a right to be. So this sort of goes to the idea of if you're just out causing trouble or you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, you can't then stand your ground. Now, you can use self-defense, but that duty to retreat comes back into play. And I'll tell you one way this comes in sort of an interesting way. Like, man, self-defense is confusing and difficult. So imagine you're in a gang. <laughs> imagine you're in a gang. You're in the Bloods or you're in the Crips or you're in whatever, right? And you and your friends go out to the bar or whatever. And lo and behold, the rival gang is there, right? And you know, you, you get into a brawl, but you're not shooting at anybody. You're just fighting. And then all of a sudden, the other gang pulls out their guns and starts shooting at you. You can't stand your ground in that circumstance. You still have the duty to retreat. But what you might have is still the duty to defend yourself. 
So even though you're involved in this like gang turf war, because the other group of people has elevated the level of violence, you do have the right to defend yourself. You don't just have to like let them kill you um, or whatever. Now, the problem with that is if you're trying to prosecute one of those cases, how in the world do you determine whether or not this person who's already involved in illegal activity is legitimately defending themselves or just in a gang shootout. So you can see how this gets confusing even beyond the, all of the problems people know already about stand your ground. Right. And why it's important to have a stand your ground defense is if in fact you have a viable defense, the judge decides, yes, you were you are allowed to stand your ground. You are immune from criminal prosecution. And the burden of the proof in stand your ground pretrial immunity hearings is on the prosecutors as of 2017. And the standard is that after a defendant raises a prima facie claim of self-defense, and prima facie means that they, based on first impression, they've met all the elements. Um, it's kind of, Think of it like a ping pong ball going back and forth. First, the defense has to raise that prima facie case. And when they do, that ping pong go- ball goes over to the prosecution. The burden shifts to the state to prove by clear and convincing evidence that the defendant is not immune from prosecution. Now, Clear and convincing proof means that the evidence presented by a party during the trial must be highly and substantially more probable to be true than not. And the trier of fact must have a firm belief or conviction in its factuality. That's a lot of words and it may not mean anything. And that's why, that's why the law is, uh, is, is not exactly straightforward. Now, where does clear and convincing proof fall? within degrees, well, it's greater than a preponderance of evidence, but it's less than beyond a reasonable doubt. And beyond a reasonable doubt is the threshold you have to meet at trial. Yeah. You know, I got to tell you, one of the most confusing things in the law is burdens of proof. Um, You hear about beyond a reasonable doubt, you know, all the time, right? And Beyond a reasonable doubt, what in the world does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean no doubt, right? I mean, that's one of the first things we always say. (laughs) But but you can see how it gets confusing. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest things is explaining to a jury what in the world beyond a reasonable doubt means. So, Alice, I don't know if you want to if you want to try and do that for our audience of jurors here. I mean, this gets brought up in just about every trial. because the strongest uh, argument you have as a defense is beyond a reasonable doubt. It is a high standard. But what prosecutors always come back with in explaining what the burden of proof is, is it doesn't mean no doubt whatsoever. Right. And it doesn't mean beyond a shadow of a doubt, whatever that means. You know, you hear that a lot on television. Um, The way it's normally in... Jury instructions, the judge usually tells the jury that it's a level of certainty that if you were making a serious, important decision in your own life, you could make that decision without hesitation. So if you have that much certainty in the guilt of this person, then you can find them guilty. Um, 
even if, you know, you can sort of imagine wild speculations on how maybe they didn't do it, if you feel that certain, then that is beyond a reasonable doubt. And there's that word reasonable coming back into play. You know, preponderance of the evidence, you hear that a lot. That just means greater than 50-50. So more likely than not, that's preponderance of the evidence. Um, that civil cases are often preponderance of the evidence. So, you know, going back to OJ, OJ was acquitted in his criminal trial and he was held liable in his civil trial. Well, the standard that of proof was much lower in his civil trial. So you can see, I mean, he was probably guilty, but <laughs> you can see why in that case, um, in the civil trial, it was so much easier to find him culpable. And yeah, this clear and convincing thing, like we say that and Alice said all the words. Th- those are the right words, but who knows what they actually mean. <laughs> those are the right words. What that means, I don't know. I mean, what is clear and convincing? How is that different from beyond, you know, a reasonable doubt? You know, a highly and substantially more probable to be true than not. You know, that's just, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that this is where it's so fact-bound, right? Those words are all thrown in there, but ultimately you have to apply to the facts. And if you can make the argument, that's, that's why uh, attorneys have jobs, because we make arguments that, you know, our set of facts fit within whatever standard of proof is there. And I think that's why, at the end of the day, you know, you have a judge making that decision. You have a judge deciding whether that level of evidence is there. And they have a lot more experience in all this than your average juror does. So you can explain what a reasonable doubt is. It would be much more difficult for a jury to decide that kind of question. So it makes sense that it's going to be the judge who gets the first cut at it at that level. So, okay, so Woodward's hearing was in 2015 before... Um, the change in the law of this uh, burden-shifting framework we just described. So at the time, the burden was on Billy's uh, team for him to prove the stand-your-ground defense applied. And uh, as we stated earlier, the judge decided that he did not have immunity from prosecution, which doesn't mean he can't argue uh, stand-your-ground defense at trial, though. And at trial, the defendant can raise the stand-your-ground defense as an affirmative defense. And with regard to presenting the claim of self-defense at trial, the standard has always been that the state is required to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant, after a showing of a prima facie claim of self-defense, did not act in lawful self-defense. And now, like I said previously, a prima facie case just means one that if unrebutted, that's enough for you to win your case. So for Billy, he simply had two bites at the apple under the old standard. But under the current standard, there's a dramatic advantage in the initial hearing where the burden is on the prosecutor. Yeah, and the state, and a lot of states have done this, really wanted to do this, I think, just because the idea is, once again, and we know there are controversial cases about this, but the idea is if it's a not controversial case, um, where it seems pretty clear that the stand your ground defense should apply, the person should not have to go through a trial. Um, and so they really wanted to make that first hurdle really high for the prosecution to get over. And then, you know, at trial, 
you have to rebut this defense and you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, but that's what you had to do anyway, right? Like the, the prosecution has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that in the case of first degree murder, that you killed someone intentionally, uh, without justification. So, you know, it's basically they had, that's what they had to prove anyway. So, you know, the advantage now is much greater than when Billy, uh, had his run through with this. And I know in Florida, there's been a lot of debate in the courts and in the Supreme Court about whether or not people who fell under the old statute should be able to appeal their convictions and have that new standard sort of applied and have a court case where they can have that decided. And if I remember correctly, the Supreme Court said that if you had committed a crime or were accused of a crime that occurred before 2017, but you had not yet been tried and convicted, the new standard applied to you. If, on the other hand, you were like Billy, because you were convicted and it was found beyond a reasonable doubt that you were guilty and that you did not have a stand your ground defense, that was sufficient so that you did not get sort of a second bite at the apple and another chance to argue in front of a judge that, you know, the the defense should apply to you. Right. So, Brett, you know, we know that Billy raised the stand your ground self-defense affirmative defense here. Could he have argued anything else? Maybe something that would have made more sense? Well, he could have argued. He could argue temporary insanity. Um, and... You know, this is such a hard question because on the one hand, and you can see why Billy took the route he did. Um, the thing that troubles me and the reason I think if I were his defense attorney, I would have gone for temporary insanity is the kill shots. You know, at some point, Billy decided to kill these people. He decided to put, you know, two bullets in their brains and he would have killed the third person if he hadn't ran out of bullets. I think it's really hard to argue any kind of self-defense in that situation. Frankly, it's one thing if Billy had shot the guy 12 times, fine. I actually don't have a problem with that because, you know, the old saw is if you're going to shoot somebody once, you might as well aim for the chest and you might as well empty your clip because you've made the decision to use deadly force, right? One bullet's all it takes. So there's sort of this notion that there's no overkill in that sort of initial thing. Um, that's one reason you'll often hear things like when someone, when there's a shootout between the police and the suspect, the suspect is often, there's often a lot of bullets and it's sort of goes back to this, that the police aren't shooting to wound. You know, the police are not supposed to fire their weapons unless they are under a imminent threat of death and they have to do it to save themselves or to save someone else. That's sort of the idea. So there's no just like, you know, wing them or whatever. Um, but after the shooting stops and the guy's on the ground and he's no longer a threat and he's neutralized, to walk over to him, reload your weapon and shoot him twice in the head, to me, is, I mean, that's not self-defense. It's not stand your ground. All you can say, I think, is you were so crazed by fear of these people that you sort of lost your mind for a little while. Or that you thought you were back in the battlefield. Or you thought you were back in the battlefield. And the way he talks reflects that, right? You know, 
It doesn't reflect this reasonable man standard we've been talking about. If anything, Billy seems like he's incredibly unreasonable. And so if he's being incredibly unreasonable, I think you have to think about insanity. Now, the problem with insanity, you know, they may raise it in every movie and every television show. It's actually really, really hard to make an insanity defense. Um, Almost impossible. You know, there's different standards. Uh, The common law standard is called the McNaughton rule. And it goes all the way back to merry old England. Um, And basically says, if you, if you don't know the difference between right and wrong, you're insane. Right. So even if you are what we might call crazy, so, you know, think of like that guy in Aurora, Colorado, who shot up the theater and that guy clearly had some issues. Right. Uh, and you might even say, man, that guy's crazy. But what you wouldn't say necessarily is he did not know the difference between right and wrong. Um, and the things you look at are things like fleeing the scene or attempting to cover your tracks or wearing a disguise You know, or in the case of Billy, walking into the middle of the street, falling down on your knees and waiting for the police to come. That shows a recognition by Billy that what he has done is at least perceived as wrong by society and by the police. And I think makes that 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 defense really difficult. I still think I still think I mean, I don't know, to be honest with you, I feel like at the end of the day, whatever your argument was, I think this jury would have reached, would have reached what is a compromise verdict um, and said, we're not going to give this guy the death penalty. We're not going to find him guilty of first degree murder, but we are, we are not going to let him go either. You know, what he did was too much. Even, even for the circumstances he was in this level of violence, which is not acceptable. Yeah. So, you know, one thing is you've just described another defense. Why not raise them both? And the problem is these two defenses are really in, uh, in tension with each other. You can't really argue both. You've, you're either of your right mind standing your ground or you're temporarily insane. And oftentimes I hear people ask that. Why not just throw all the affirmative defenses up there? And the problem is you, you have to have a coherent theory. Uh, as your defense or as the prosecution, and they can't work in tension with each other. And, and we see, and that's one of the things um, a good lawyer will point out. If you do throw too many arguments up there that are in contradiction with each other, uh, a, a good lawyer will argue you can't do that. And they, because you have too many okay reasons, all of them must be wrong reasons. Um, and so, right, like you can't you can't argue you had a good alibi, but you also were entrapped. You know, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so, you know, while while I I see arguments for both um, defenses, at the end of the day, his team had to go with just one. And I think the biggest problem with the defense they went with was the kill shots and the reloading. I think those two actions, because there's you know heat of the moment. You've may, maybe heard of like uh, in the heat of passion, but when you have time to reload and then aim for kill shots, I think that. No longer are you in the frame of mind to stand your ground. And I think that's why they, the jury reached this compromised position, even though I don't think, I think the outcome should have been first degree murder or acquittal in terms of how the law should apply. But like we said, the jury can do what they want. And 
at the end of the day, they, they, they knew that this probably, this was not okay. You can't just have people, no matter how heated things get, walking around and killing their neighbors. But he wasn't unprovoked. Exactly. And, you know, it's so funny because even as a lawyer and even as a prosecutor and even as somebody who knows the law, I agree with you 100%. He should either be acquitted or convicted of first-degree murder. I feel like if I was on a jury, I totally would have gone with this. I would have been like, you know what? <laughs> this guy, he was pushed to the edge. And while I'm he not going to say I understand it. Yeah, he, he doesn't. He's not a even, – even though he kind of was a cold-blooded killer – he he's not a cold blooded killer, and you can see how, you know, this rage or whatever just overwhelmed him, and all of this abuse and all of this bullying and all of this these threats um, led him to do this thing. But I I think you're 100 percent right. I think if he hadn't done the kill shots, I think if he'd if he'd have shot all three of these guys twelve times, but not done the kill shots. I kind of think he might have got off. I kind of think he would have been acquitted like across the board. Um, we'll never know that, but I just feel like there was enough there that the jury could have been convinced, not the judge. I don't think the judge would have given him the stand your ground defense immunity, but I think you could have convinced a jury of that. And, is there anything we can do about jury nullification? Can a jury really do whatever they want if they don't agree that this guy should die? Um, and by the way, the jury isn't supposed to think about the sentence. Um, is there any recourse for that? Or are you just stuck with what the jury decides? I mean, the only recourse you have is a really good instruction from the judge, as far as I know. Um, like I said, if you're convicted and you can prove that the jury had, and it used to not even, used to not even be able to do this. It used to be that a jury was a black box and, you know, you gave them all the information. They went back into the jury room, they did their thing and they came out and whatever they said is what they said. Now you can, in very limited circumstances, look to see whether prejudice or racism or that kind of thing drove the jury to do, um, what they did. One interesting, there was an interesting case not too long ago that made national news that was a juror. So they had a jury and one juror, it's like he goes back at the very beginning and he tells the other jurors, an angel has spoken to me and this person's not guilty, right? And so the jury actually writes a note to the judge and says, hey, you know, this person said this, um, we're concerned about their ability to decide impartially and the judge actually removed that juror and replaced them with an alternate. And that actually became like a big source of controversy and litigation about whether or not you could do that. But short of something like that, at the end of the day, if the jury wants to acquit, the jury can acquit. And once they do, it's double jeopardy. And you can't, if you're acquitted of first degree murder, the prosecution cannot turn around and charge you with manslaughter. Um, double jeopardy applies to any criminal charges that could have been brought out of that common nucleus of facts, basically. So charging decisions are really important for the prosecution. And that's why it is such a risk to go to trial. It could be a huge win if you are acquitted, but you don't really have recourse if the jury does something like jury nullification. 
And that's why the majority of cases in our country do plea rather than go to trial. Yeah, juries are a total wild card, and you just never know what you're going to get. And you don't know what you're going to get from jury to jury. You know, you present the exact same facts to two different jurors, juries, and, you know, I would like to think that most of the time you'd get the same verdict, but not all of the time. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's an interesting question. Um, and I'm interested to know what you guys think. I mean, you've heard the facts now, and there's really not anything that we, you know, left behind or left out. Uh, those are the facts. And I'm curious, those of you who are listening. How would you decide if you were on the jury? Right. What would your What would your vote be? Would you vote to convict on first-degree murder? Do you agree with what the jury did? Do you think this was self-defense? Um, do you think this was insanity? Uh, yeah, I mean, let us know. You know, our, we tell you all this, tell you, tell you this all the time, but we'll tell you again. Our website is prosecutorspodcast.com. Our Gmail accounts, prosecutorspod at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter and now on Facebook. So those of you who like Facebook, go ahead and look us up there. Um, I hate Facebook, but, but we went ahead and did it just for you. So <laughs> wherever you feel comfortable, let us know what you think. You know, shoot us your emails. You guys have been great about giving us feedback uh, and we want to keep hearing it from you. But I think that's all I've got on this one, Alice. Do you have any final thoughts you want to add? That's it, man. This was, it was heated. It was heated. And, you know, the thing that was so interesting about this, like I said, I think it has some echoes of sort of what we're seeing on a grander scale today. And I also think there's just so much interesting legal stuff about this case. So we really wanted to do that. If we confused you, we said a lot of stuff in this case, and we talked about a lot of things. If we confused you about any of that, let us know. We will cover it again in a follow-up episode. Um, but hopefully, you know, you learned something today and took your mind off all the craziness, uh, that 2020 has brought. What a year. We'll, we'll never forget this one. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> certainly not because it's the year of our podcast. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's the most important thing that's happened this year. Um, <laughs> well, Alice, it's been a pleasure as always. Uh, can't wait to see you again, talk to you again, do this podcast again. But I guess until next week when we'll have a new case, new questions, new answers. I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And we are The Prosecutor. Did you have anything to say, Alice, before we dive into no, that was just such a beautiful one? intro. Oh. I didn't know where you were going at first, but that was beautiful. <laughs> you can cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to compliment you. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. <laughs>